This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Mall Flanders by Daniel Defoe. Section 20. I was now returned to London, and though by the accident of the last adventure I got something considerable, yet I was not fond of any more country rambles, nor should I have ventured abroad again if I had carried the trade on to the end of my days. I gave my governess a history of my travels. She liked the Harwich journey well enough, and in discoursing of these things between ourselves she observed that a thief being a creature that watches the advantages of other people's mistakes, it is impossible but that to one that is vigilant and industrious many opportunities must happen, and therefore she thought that one so exquisitely keen in the trade as I was would scarce fail of something extraordinary wherever I went. On the other hand, Every branch of my story, if duly considered, may be useful to honest people, and afford a due caution to people of some sort or other to guard against the like surprises, and to have their eyes about them when they have to do with strangers of any kind, for it is very seldom that some snare or other is not in their way. The moral, indeed, of all my history is left to be gathered by the senses and judgment of the reader. I am not qualified to preach to them. Let the experience of one creature completely wicked and completely miserable be a storehouse or useful warning to those that read. I am drawing now towards a new variety of the scenes of life. Upon my return, being hardened by a long race of crime, and success unparalleled, at least in the reach of my own knowledge, I had, as I have said, no thoughts of laying down a trade which, if I was to judge by the example of others, must, however, end at last in misery and sorrow. It was on the Christmas day following, in the evening, that to finish a long train of wickedness I went abroad to see what might offer my way. When going by a working silversmith's in Foster Lane, I saw a tempting bait indeed, and not be resisted by one of my occupation, for the shop had nobody in it, as I could see, and a great deal of loose plate lay in the window, and at the seat of the man, who usually, as I supposed, worked at one side of the shop. I went boldly in, and was just going to lay my hand on a piece of plate, and might have done it, and carried it clear off for any care that the men who belonged to the shop had taken of it, but an officious fellow in a house, not a shop, on the other side of the way, seeing me go in, and observing that there was nobody in the shop, comes running over the street and into the shop, and without asking me what I was or who, seizes upon me, and cries out for the people of the house. I had not, as I said above, touched anything in the shop, and seeing a glimpse of somebody running over to the shop, I had so much presence of mind as to knock very hard with my foot on the floor of the house, and was just calling out, too, when the fellow laid his hands on me. However, as I always had most courage when I was in most danger, so, when the fellow laid hands on me, I stood very high upon it, that I came in to buy half a dozen of silver spoons, and to my good fortune it was a silversmith's that sold plate, as well as worked plate for other shops. The fellow laughed at that part, and put such a value upon the service that he had done his neighbour, that he would have it be that I came not to buy but to steal, and raising a great crowd. I said to the master of the shop, who by this time was fetched home from some neighbouring place, that it was in vain to make noise, and to enter into talk there of the case. The fellow had insisted that I came to steal, and he must prove it, and I desired we might go before a magistrate without any more words, for I began to see I should be too hard for the man that had seized me. The master and mistress of the shop were really not so violent as the man from the other side of the way 
and the man said, "'Mistress, you might come into the shop with a good design, for aught I know, but it seemed a dangerous thing for you to come into such a shop as mine is when you see nobody there, and I cannot do justice to my neighbour, who was so kind to me as not to acknowledge he had reason on his side, though upon the whole I do not find you attempted to take anything, and I really know not what to do in it. I pressed him to go before a magistrate with me, and if anything could be proved on me that was like a design of robbery, I should willingly submit.' but if not, I expected reparation. Just while we were in this debate, and a crowd of people gathered about the door, came by Sir T. B., an alderman of the city, and justice of the peace, and the goldsmith, hearing of it, goes out, and entreated his worship to come in and decide the case. Give the goldsmith his due, he told his story with a great deal of justice and moderation, and the fellow that had come over and seized upon me told his with as much heat and foolish passion, which did me good still rather than harm. It came then my turn to speak, and I told his worship that I was a stranger in London, being newly come out of the north, that I was lodged in such a place, that I was passing this street, and went into the goldsmith's shop to buy half a dozen of spoons. By great luck I had an old silver spoon in my pocket, which I pulled out, and told him I had carried that spoon to match it with half a dozen of new ones, that it might match some I had in the country. That seeing nobody in the shop, I knocked with my foot very hard to make the people hear, and had also called aloud with my voice. Tis true there was loose plate in the shop, but that nobody could say I had touched any of it, or gone near it, that a fellow came running into the shop out of the street, and laid hands on me in a furious manner, in the very moments while I was calling for the people of the house, that if he had really had a mind to have done his neighbour any service, he should have stood at a distance, and silently watched to see whether I touched anything or no, and then have clapped in upon me, and taken me in the fact. "'That is very true,' said Mr. Alderman, and turning to the fellow that stopped me, he asked him if it was true that I knocked with my foot.' He said, yes, I had knocked, but that might be because of his coming. Nay, said the alderman, taking him short, now you contradict yourself, for just now you said she was in the shop with her back to you, and did not see you till you came upon her. Now, it was true that my back was partly to the street, but yet, as my business was of a kind that required me to have my eyes every way, so I really had a glance of him running over, as I said before, though he did not perceive it. After a full hearing, the alderman gave it as his opinion that his neighbour was under a mistake, and that I was innocent, and the goldsmith acquiesced in it too, and his wife, and so I was dismissed. But as I was going to depart, Mr. Alderman said, "'But hold, madam, if you were designing to buy spoons, I hope you will not let my friend here lose his customer by the mistake.' I readily answered, "'No, sir, I'll buy the spoon still, if he can match my odd spoon, which I brought for a pattern.' and the goldsmith showed me some of the very same fashion. So he weighed the spoons, and they came to five-and-thirty shillings, so I pulls out my purse to pay him, in which I had near twenty guineas, for I never went without such a sum about me, whatever might happen, and I found it of use at other times as well as now. When Mr. Alderman saw my money, he said, "'Well, madam, now I am satisfied you were wronged, and it was for this reason that I moved you should buy the spoons, and stayed till you had bought them.' for if you had not had money to pay for them, I should have suspected that you did not come into the shop with an interest to buy, for, indeed, the sort of people who come upon these designs that you have been charged with are seldom troubled with much gold in their pockets, as I see you are. I smiled, and told his worship that I owed something of his favour to my money, but I hoped he saw reason also in the justice he had done me before. He said yes, he had, but this having confirmed his opinion, he was fully satisfied now of my having been injured. 
so I came off with flying colours, though from an affair in which I was at the very brink of destruction. It was but three days after this, that not at all made cautious by my former danger as I used to be, and still pursuing the art which I had so long been employed in, I ventured into a house where I saw the doors open, and furnished myself, as I thought verily without being perceived, with two pieces of flowered silks, such as they call brocaded silks, very rich. It was not a mercer's shop, nor the warehouse of a mercer, but looked like a private dwelling-house, and was, it seems, inhabited by a man that sold goods for the weavers to the mercers, like a broker or a factor. That I may make short of this black part of the story, I was attacked by two wenches that came open-mouthed at me just as I was going out the door, and one of them pulled me back into the room, while the other shut the door upon me. I would have given them good words, but there was no room for it. Two fiery dragons could not have been more furious than they were. They tore my clothes, bullied and roared as if they would have murdered me. The mistress of the house came next, and then the master, and all outrageous for a while especially. I gave the master very good words, told him the door was open, and things were a temptation to me, that I was poor and distressed, and poverty was when many could not resist, and begged him with tears to have pity on me. The mistress of the house was moved with compassion, and inclined to have let me go, and had almost persuaded her husband to it also. But the saucy wenches were run even before they were sent, and had fetched a constable, and then the master said he could not go back, I must go before a justice, and answered his wife that he might come into trouble himself if he should let me go. The sight of the constable indeed struck me with terror, and I thought I should have sunk into the ground. I fell into faintings, and indeed the people themselves thought I would have died, when the woman argued again for me, and entreated her husband, seeing that they had lost nothing, to let me go. I offered to pay him for the two pieces, whatever the value was, though I had not got them, and argued that, as he had his goods, and had lost really nothing, it would be cruel to pursue me to death, and have my blood for the bare attempt of taking them. I put the constable in mind that I had broke no doors, nor carried anything away, and when I came to the justice, and pleaded that I had neither broken anything to get in, nor carried anything out, the justice was inclined to have released me, but the first saucy jade that stopped me, affirming that I was going out with the goods, but that she stopped me and pulled me back as I was upon the threshold, the justice upon that point committed me, and I was carried to Newgate. That horrid place, my very blood chills at the mere mention of its name, the place where so many of my comrades had been locked up, and from whence they went to the fatal tree the place where my mother suffered so deeply, where I was brought into the world, and from whence I expected no redemption but by an infamous death, to conclude the place that had so long expected me, and which with so much art and success I had so long avoided. I was not fixed indeed. Tis impossible to describe the terror of my mind when I was first brought in, and when I looked around upon all the horrors of that dismal place. I looked on myself as lost, and that I had nothing to think of but going out of the world, and that with the utmost infamy, the hellish noise, the roaring, swearing, and clamour, the stench and nastiness, and all the dreadful crowd of afflicting things that I saw there, joined together to make the place seem an emblem of hell itself, and a kind of entrance into it. Now I reproached myself with the many hints I had had, as I have mentioned above, from my own reason, from the sense of my good circumstances, and of the many dangers I had escaped, to leave off while I was well, and how I had withstood them all, and hardened my thoughts against all fear. 
It seemed to me that I was hurried on by an inevitable and unseen fate to this day of my misery, and that now I was to expiate all my offences at the gallows, that I was now to give satisfaction to justice with my blood, and that I was come to the last hour of my life and of my wickedness together. These things poured themselves in upon my thoughts in a confused manner, and left me overwhelmed with melancholy and despair. Them I repented heartily of all my life past, but that repentance yielded me no satisfaction, no peace, no, not in the least, because, as I said to myself, it was repenting after the power of further sinning was taken away. I seemed not to mourn that I had committed such crimes, and for the fact as it was an offence against God and my neighbour, but I mourned that I was to be punished for it. I was a penitent, as I thought, not that I had sinned, but that I was to suffer and this took away all the comfort, and even the hope of my repentance in my own thoughts. I got no sleep for several nights or days after I came into that wretched place, and glad I would have been for some time to have died there, though I did not consider dying as it ought to be considered neither. Indeed, nothing could be filled with more horror to my imagination than the very place. Nothing was more odious to me than the company that was there. Oh, if I had been sent away to any place in the world, and not to Newgate, I should have thought myself happy." In the next place, how did the hardened wretches that were there before me triumph over me? What, Mrs. Flanders come to Newgate at last? What, Mrs. Mary, Mrs. Molly, and after that plain Moll Flanders? They thought the devil had helped me, they said, that I had reigned so long. They expected me there many years ago, and was I come at last? Then they flouted me with my dejections, welcomed me to the place, wished me joy, bid me have a good heart not to be cast down, things might not be so bad as I feared, and the like then called for brandy and drank to me, but put it all up to my score, for they told me I was but just come to the college, as they called it, and sure I had money in my pocket, though they had none. I asked one of this crew how long she had been there. She said four months. I asked her how the place looked to her when she first came into it. "'Just as it did now to you,' says she, dreadful and frightful, that she thought she was in hell, and I believe so still, adds she, but it is natural to me, so I don't disturb myself about it. "'I suppose,' says I, "'you are in no danger of what's to follow.' "'Nay,' said she, "'for you are mistaken there, I assure you. I am under sentence, only I pleaded my belly, but I am no more with child than the judge that tried me, and I expect to be called down next sessions.' This calling down is calling to their former judgment, when a woman has been respited for her belly, but proves not to be with child, or if she has been with child, and been brought to bed. "'Well,' says I, "'are you thus easy?' "'Aye,' said she, "'I can't help myself. What signifies being sad? If I am hanged, there's an end of me,' says she, and away she turns dancing, and sings as she goes the following piece of Newgate wit. "'If I swing by the string, I shall hear the bell ring, and then there's an end of poor Jenny.' I mention this, because it would here be worth the observation of any prisoner, who shall hereafter fall into the same misfortune, and come to that dreadful place of Newgate, how time, necessity, and conversing with the wretches that are there, familiarizes the place to them, how at last they become reconciled to that which at first was the greatest dread upon their spirits in the world, and are as impudently cheerful and merry in their misery as they were when out of it. I cannot say, as some do, this devil is not so black as he is painted, for indeed no colours can represent the place to the life, not any soul conceive a right of it but those who have been sufferers there. But how hell should become by degrees so natural, and not only tolerable but even agreeable, is a thing unintelligible but by those who have experienced it as I have. 
the same night that I was sent to Newgate, I sent the news of it to my old governess, who was surprised at it, you may be sure, and spent the night almost as ill out of Newgate as I did in it. The next morning she came to see me. She did what she could to comfort me, but she saw it was to no purpose. However, as she said, to sink under the weight was but to increase the weight. She immediately applied herself to all the proper methods to prevent the effects of it, which we feared, and first she found out the two fiery jades that had surprised me. She tampered with them, offered them money, and, in a word, tried all imaginable ways to prevent a prosecution. She offered one of the wenches one hundred pounds to go away from her mistress, and not to appear against me, but she was so resolute that though she was but a servant-maid at three pounds a year wages, or thereabouts, she refused it, and would have refused it, as my governess said she believed, if she had offered her five hundred. Then she attacked the other maid. She was not so hard-hearted in appearance as the other, and sometimes seemed inclined to be merciful, but the first wench kept her up, and changed her mind, and would not so much as let my governess talk with her, but threatened to have her up for tampering with the evidence. Then she applied to the master, that is to say, the man whose goods had been stolen, and particularly to his wife, who, as I told you, was inclined at first to have some compassion for me. She found the woman the same still, but the man alleged he was bound by the justice that committed me to prosecute, and that he should forfeit his recognizance. My governess offered to find friends that should get his recognizances off of the file, as they called it, and that he should not suffer, but it was not possible to convince him that it could be done, or that he could be safe any way in the world but by appearing against me. So I was to have three witnesses of fact against me, the master and his two maids, that is to say, I was as certain to be cast for my life as I was certain that I was alive, and I had nothing to do but think of dying, and prepare for it. I had but a sad foundation to build upon, as I said before, for all my repentance appeared to me to be only the effect of my fear of death, not a sincere regret for the wicked life that I had lived, and which had brought this misery upon me, for the offending my Creator, who was suddenly to be my judge. I lived many days here in the utmost horror of my soul. I had death, as it were, in view, and thought of nothing night and day, but of gibbets and halters, evil spirits and devils. It is not to be expressed by words how I was harassed, between the dreadful apprehensions of death, and the terror of my conscience reproaching me with my horrible past life. The ordinary of Newgate came to me, and talked a little in his way, but all his divinity ran upon confessing my crime, as he called it, though he knew not what I was in for, making a full discovery and the like, without which, he told me, God would never forgive me, and he said so little to the purpose, that I had no manner of consolation from him, and then to observe the poor creature preaching confession and repentance to me in the morning, and find him drunk with brandy and spirits by noon, this had something in it so shocking, that I began to nauseate the man more than his work, and his work too by degrees, for the sake of the man, so that I desired him to trouble me no more. I know not how it was, but by the indefatigable application of my diligent governess, I had no bill preferred against me at the first sessions, I mean to the grand jury, at Guildhall, so I had another month, or five weeks, before me, and without doubt this ought to have been accepted by me, as so much time given me for reflection upon what was past, and preparation for what was to come, or, in a word, I ought to have esteemed it as a space given me for repentance, and have employed it as such, but it was not in me. I was sorry, as before, for being in Newgate, but had very few signs of repentance about me. On the contrary, 
like the waters in the cavities and hollows of mountains, which petrify and turn into stone whatever they are suffered to drop on, so the continual conversing with such a crew of hell-hounds as I was had the same common operation upon me as upon other people. I degenerated into stone, I turned first stupid and senseless, then brutish and thoughtless, and at last raving mad as any of them were, and in short I became as naturally pleased and easy with the place as if indeed I had been born there. It is scarce possible to imagine that our natures should be capable of so much degeneracy as to make that pleasant and agreeable that in itself is the most complete misery. Here was a circumstance that I think it scarce possible to mention a worse. I was as exquisitely miserable as, speaking of common cases, it was possible for any one to be that had life and health and money to help them, as I had. I had weight of guilt upon me, enough to sink any creature who had the least power of reflection left, and had any sense upon them of the happiness of this life, of the misery of another. Then I had at first remorse indeed, but no repentance. I had now neither remorse nor repentance. I had a crime charged on me, the punishment of which was death by our law, the proof so evident that there was no room for me so much as to plead not guilty. I had the name of an old offender, so that I had nothing to expect but death in a few weeks' time, neither had I myself any thoughts of escaping, and yet a certain strange lethargy of soul possessed me. I had no trouble, no apprehensions, no sorrow about me. The first surprise was gone. I was, I may well say, I know not how. My senses, my reason, nay, my conscience were all asleep. My course of life for forty years had been a horrid complication of wickedness, whoredom, adultery, incest, lying, and theft. And in a word, everything but murder and treason had been my practice from the age of eighteen, or thereabouts, to threescore. And now I was engulfed in the misery of punishment, and had an infamous death just at the door. And yet I had no sense of my condition, no thought of heaven or hell at least, that went any further than a bare flying touch, like the stitch or pain that gives a hint and goes off. I had neither a heart to ask God's mercy, nor indeed to think of it. And in this, I think, I have given a brief description of the completest misery on earth. All my terrifying thoughts were past the horror of the place were become familiar, and I felt no more uneasiness at the noise and clamours of the prison than they did who made that noise. In a word, I was become a mere Newgate-bird, as wicked and as outrageous as any of them. Nay, I scarce retained the habit and custom of good breeding and manners, which all along till now ran through my conversation. So thorough a degeneracy had possessed me, that I was no more the same thing that I had been, than if I had never been otherwise than what I was now." In the middle of this hardened part of my life I had another sudden surprise, which called me back a little to that thing called sorrow, which indeed I began to be past the sense of before. They told me one night that there was brought into the prison late the night before three highwaymen, who had committed robbery somewhere on the road to Windsor, Hounslow Heath, I think it was, and were pursued to Uxbridge by the country, and were taken there after a gallant resistance, in which I know not how many of the country people were wounded, and some killed." it is not to be wondered that we prisoners were all desirous enough to see these brave topping gentlemen, that were talked up to be such as their fellows had not been known, and especially because it was said that they would in the morning be removed to the press-yard, having given money to the headmaster of the prison, to be allowed the liberty of that better part of the prison. So we that were women placed ourselves in the way, that we would be sure to see them. But nothing could express 
the amazement and surprise I was in, when the very first man that came out I knew to be my Lancashire husband, the same who lived so well at Dunstable, and the same who I afterwards saw at Brickhill, when I was married to my last husband, as has been related. I was struck dumb at the sight, and knew neither what to say nor what to do. He did not know me, and that was all the present relief I had. I quitted my company, and retired as much as that dreadful place suffers anybody to retire, and cried vehemently for a great while. "'Dreadful creature that I am,' said I, "'how many poor people have I made miserable? How many desperate wretches have I sent to the devil?' He had told me at Chester he was ruined by that match, and his fortunes were made desperate on my account, for that thinking I had been a fortune, he was run into debt more than he was able to pay, and that he knew not what course to take, that he would go into the army and carry a musket, or buy a horse and take a tour, as he called it, and though I never told him that I was a fortune, and so did not actually deceive him myself, yet I did encourage the having it thought that I was so, and by that means I was the occasion originally of his mischief.' The surprise of the thing only struck deeper into my thoughts, and gave me stronger reflections than all that had befallen me before. I grieved day and night for him, and the more for that they told me he was the captain of the gang, and that he had committed so many robberies that Hind or Whitney or the Golden Farmer were fools to him, that he would surely be hanged if there were no more men left in the country he was born in, and that there would be abundance of people come in against him. I was overwhelmed with grief for him. My own case gave me no disturbance compared to this, and I loaded myself with reproaches on his account. I bewailed his misfortunes, and the ruin he was now come to at such a rate that I relished nothing now as I did before, and the first reflections I made upon the horrible detestable life I had lived began to return upon me, and as these things returned, my abhorrence of the place I was in, and of the way of living in it, returned also. In a word, I was perfectly changed, and became another body." While I was under these influences of sorrow for him, came notice to me that the next sessions approaching there would be a bill preferred to the grand jury against me, and that I would certainly be tried for my life at the old bailey. My temper was touched before, the hardened, wretched boldness of spirit which I had acquired abated, and conscience in the, and conscious in the prison, guilt began to flow in upon my mind. In short, I began to think, and to think is one real advance from hell into heaven." All that hellish, hardened state and temper of soul, which I have said so much of before, is but a deprivation of thought. He that is restored to his power of thinking is restored to himself. As soon as I began, I say, to think, the first think that occurred to me broke out thus, Lord, what will become of me? I shall certainly die. I shall be cast, to be sure, and there is nothing beyond that but death. I have no friends. What shall I do? I shall certainly be cast. Lord, have mercy upon me. What will become of me? This was a sad thought, you will say, to be the first, after so long a time, that had started into my soul of that kind, and yet even this was nothing but fright at what was to come. There was not a word of sincere repentance in it at all. However, I was indeed dreadfully dejected, and disconsolate to the last degree, and as I had no friend in the world to communicate my distressed thoughts to, it lay so heavy upon me that it threw me into fits and swoonings several times a day. I sent for my old governess, and she, give her her due, acted the part of a true friend. She left no stone unturned to prevent the grand jury finding the bill. She sought out one or two of the jurymen, talked with them, and endeavoured to possess them with favourable dispositions, on account that nothing was taken, and no house broken, etc. But all would not do. They were overruled by the rest. The two wenches swore home to the fact, and the jury found the bill against me for robbery and housebreaking, that is, for felony and burglary. 
I sunk down when they brought me news of it, and after I came to myself again I thought I should have died with the weight of it. My governess acted a true mother to me. She pitied me, she cried with me, and for me, but she could not help me. And to add to the terror of it, t'was the discourse all over the house that I should die for it. I could hear them talk it among themselves very often, and see them shake their heads and say they were sorry for it and the like, as is usual in the place, but still nobody came to tell me their thoughts, till at last one of the keepers came to me privately, and said with a sigh, "'Well, Mrs. Flanders, you will be tried on Friday. This was but a Wednesday. What do you intend to do?' I turned as white as a clout and said, "'God knows what I shall do. For my part I know not what to do.' Why, says he, I won't flatter you, I would have you prepare for death, for I doubt you will be cast, and as they say you are an old offender, I doubt you will find but little mercy. They say, added he, your case is very plain, and that the witnesses swear so home against you there will be no standing it. This was a stab into the very vitals of one under such a burthen as I was oppressed with before, and I could not speak to him a word, good or bad, for a great while, but at last I burst out into tears and said to him, Lord, mister, what must I do? do says he send for the ordinary send for a minister and talk with him for indeed mrs flanders unless you have very good friends you are no woman for this world this was plain dealing indeed but it was very harsh to me at least i thought it so he left me in the greatest confusion imaginable and all that night i lay awake and now i began to say my prayers which i had scarce done before since my last husband's death or from a little while after and truly I may well call it saying my prayers, for I was in such a confusion, and had such horror upon my mind, that though I cried, and have repeated several times the ordinary expression of Lord have mercy on me, I never brought myself to any sense of my being a miserable sinner, as indeed I was, and of confessing my sins to God, and begging pardon for the sake of Jesus Christ. I was overwhelmed with the sense of my condition, being tried for my life, and sure to be condemned, and then I was as sure to be executed, and on this account I cried all night, Lord, what will become of me? Lord, what shall I do? Lord, I shall be hanged! Lord, have mercy on me! And the like. My poor afflicted governess was now as much concerned as I, and a great deal more truly penitent, though she had no prospect of being brought to trial and sentence. Not but that she deserved it as much as I, and so she said herself, but she had not done anything herself for many years, other than receiving what I and others stole, and encouraging us to steal it. But she cried, and took on like a distracted body, wringing her hands and crying out that she was undone, that she believed there was a curse from heaven upon her, that she should be damned, that she had been the destruction of all her friends, that she had brought such a one, and such a one, and such a one to the gallows. And there she reckoned up ten or eleven people, some of which I have given account of, that came to untimely ends, and that now she was the occasion of my ruin, for she had persuaded me to go on, when I would have left off. I interrupted her there. "'No, mother, no,' said I. "'Don't speak of that, for you would have had me left off when I got the mercer's money again, and when I came home from Harwich, and would not hearken to you. Therefore you have not been to blame. It is I only have ruined myself. I have brought myself to this misery.' And thus we spent many hours together. Well, there was no remedy. The prosecution went on, and on the Thursday I was carried down to the Sessions-house, where I was arraigned, as they called it, and the next day I was appointed to be tried. At the arraignment I pleaded not guilty, and well I might, for I was indicted for felony and burglary, that is, for feloniously stealing two pieces of brocaded silk, value forty-six pounds, the goods of Anthony Johnson's, and for breaking open his doors, whereas I knew very well they could not pretend to prove I had broken the doors, or so much as lifted up a latch. On the Friday I was brought to my trial. 
I had exhausted my spirits with crying for two or three days before, so that I slept better the Thursday night than I expected, and had more courage for my trial than indeed I thought possible for me to have. When the trial began, the indictment was read. I would have spoke, but they told me the witnesses must be heard first, and then I should have time to be heard. The witnesses were the two wenches, a couple of hard-mouthed jades indeed, for though the thing was truth in the main, yet they aggravated it to the utmost extremity, and swore I had the goods wholly in my possession, that I had hid them among my clothes, that I was going off with them, that I had one foot over the threshold when they discovered themselves, and then I put the other over, so that I was quite out of the house in the street with the goods before they took hold of me, and then they seized me, and brought me back again, and they took the goods upon me. The fact in general was all true, but I believe, and insisted upon it, that they stopped me before I had set my foot clear of the threshold of the house, but that did not argue much, for certain it was that I had taken the goods, and I was bringing them away, if I had not been taken. But I pleaded that I had still nothing, they had lost nothing, the door was open, and I went in, seeing the goods lie there, and with design to buy. If seeing nobody in the house I had taken any of them up in my hand, it could not be concluded that I intended to steal them, for that I never carried them farther than the door, to look on them with the better light. The court would not allow that by any means, and made a kind of jest of my intending to buy the goods, that being no shop for the selling of anything, and as to carrying them to the door to look upon them, the maids made their impudent mocks upon that, and spent their wit upon it very much, told the court I had looked on them sufficiently, and approved them very well, for I had packed them up under my clothes, and was going with them. In short, I was found guilty of the felony, but acquitted of the burglary, which was but small comfort to me, the first bringing me a sentence of death, and the last would have done no more. The next day I was carried down to receive the dreadful sentence, and when they came to ask me what I had to say why sentence should not pass, I stood mute a while, but somebody that stood behind me prompted me aloud to speak to the judges, for that they could represent things favorably for me. This encouraged me to speak, and I told them I had nothing to say to stop the sentence, but that I had much to say to bespeak the mercy of the court, that I hoped they would allow something in such a case for the circumstances of it, that I had broken no doors, had carried nothing off, that nobody had lost anything, that the person whose goods they were was pleased to say he desired mercy might be shown, which indeed he very honestly did, that at the worst it was the first offence, and that I had never before been in any court of justice before. And in a word, I spoke with more courage than I thought I could have done, and in such a moving tone, and though with tears, yet not so many tears as to obstruct my speech, that I could see it moved others to tears that heard me. The judges sat grave and mute, gave me an easy hearing, and time to say all that I would, but saying neither yes nor no to it, pronounced the sentence of death upon me, a sentence that was to me like death itself, which after it was read confounded me. I had no more spirit left in me. I had no tongue to speak, nor eyes to look up either to God nor man. My poor governess was utterly disconsolate, and she that was my comforter before wanted comfort now herself, and sometimes mourning, sometimes raging, was as much out of herself as to all outward appearance as any mad woman in Bedlam. Nor was she only disconsolate as to me, but she was struck with horror at the sense of her own wicked life, and began to look back upon it with a taste quite different from mine, for she was penitent to the highest degree for her sins, as well as sorrowful for the misfortune. She sent for a minister, too, a serious, pious, good man, and applied herself with such earnestness by his assistance to the work of a sincere repentance that I believe, and so did the minister, too, that she was a true penitent, and which is still more. 
She was not only so for the occasion, and at that juncture, but she continued so, as I was informed, to the day of her death. It is rather to be thought of than expressed what was now my condition. I had nothing before me but present death, and as I had no friends to assist me, or to stir for me, I expected nothing but to find my name in the dead warrant, which was to come down for the execution, the Friday afterwards, of five more, and myself. End of section 20